I could not for the life of me get this message even off the ground. Philippians 3 is where we're at. I studied the text. I knew what the text said. There were a lot of verses that pulled my heartstrings, but it just seemed like every time I sat down to write, I just didn't know where to start. Distractions were certainly at play that I, distractions, things that I don't think I should have concerned my mind with. Certain words I wished were better rendered. And why did the, the Berean Bible word it this way? So yes, I am using a different translation just this Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, you're like, yeah, right. But anyways, that all played a part. Then there's guilt and shame because I fear I'm just taking too much time and I'm robbing time from Christy and the boys and, so finally, Thursday morning, I just realized this. I just said, I'm weak. <laughs> I'm just weak here. And and then I knew this about my text because I'd only read it about 40 times in 30 different translations. Paul, though he's dialoguing on what strong faith is, he's speaking from a place of weakness. And he reveals that subtly in the passage. So he and I have that in common. And I, I wonder if you're weak, or if you've been weak before, You've maybe you've doubted something in your relationship with Christ Jesus. Maybe you fought and you failed with sin for so long. You can't keep that that personality quirk or that sinful behavior in check. This situation has spiraled out of control and you're willing even to accept blame, but the prospect or the ability of redemption is so far from happening, it feels like. Weakness. Let's look together at Philippians 3, 12 through 21 and see what, what Paul has to say on the matter. If you're able to stand, I do invite you to do so. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brethren, I I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brethren, join in imitating me and mark those who so live as you have an example in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brethren, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Father, as I read and read and read through this text, and eventually came to only what felt like unearthing a very top of an iceberg, I just pray that you would use these words to glorify your son Jesus. Father, lift Jesus up so that we can adore him more and be more like him, reflect him, do what we were made for. And help us in our weakness to look to you to gain strength. As we sang this morning, let the weak say, I am strong because of what the Lord has done for us. So say what it is you desire, get me out of the way. Give us ears and hearts to hear you that are soft and tender to your voice. Don't let this time slip through our hands without any changes you wish to make in us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the one operating and empowering us to change. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. From a a place or a vantage point of weakness, then, we will unpack four truths in this text. Weakness looks upward. Weakness imitates strength. Paul will then tell us about weakness gone awry. And finally, where weakness finds salvation. Weakness looks upward. Weakness imitates strength. Weakness gone awry and where weakness finds salvation. Weakness looks upward. Behind what Paul has been saying so far in Philippians 3 is this startling, unsettling truth that you and I are too weak as far as the righteousness that God demands. Maybe even expects is better here. If we consider the original intention behind creation, God made people in a perfect world to reflect Him. So He should expect it. And Paul opens chapter 3 that there are those who are all law happy, right? Let's follow the law. But then he says, we are the true circumcision, who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we're weak. We admit that. We worship God in spirit. That is not by our deeds, but by our love, our affections, our spiritual reliance and dependence. And then we glory in what? Not in our performance of the law, but in Christ Jesus who fulfilled the law for us. And just in case his readers or hearers didn't get the picture, he adds that we put no confidence in the flesh. That's humiliating. It really is. It's an admission of inadequacy. An admission of guilt, an admission of weakness. Can you keep the law? My confidence in doing so is null and void. (laughs) I'm calling a big fat no to answer that. That's what Paul is saying. Have you admitted or believed that? 
Because I can tell you, as a lifelong Christian and a pastor now, I have not all the time. I still wake up some days with guilt, wondering, how can God love me? But the startling reality is God loves me because of Christ. And if it's because of Christ, it's not because of what I did or what I do. It's because of who He is. And that alone. Can you say with me, Christ loves me, period. Christ loves me, period. And so Paul, once again, he unpacks the Gospel in Philippians 3. He brings up Judaizers, those who who say, I have to work myself to God. And, and Paul says, no, I'm, I'm Jewish, and I figured, I figured the Gospel out. We're the real chosen ones of God, and it's in Christ. And again, he unpacks the Gospel, which since I've been doing that the last two weeks, I'll just suffice it to say, he's basically saying Christ is worth losing it all for. And our lives of righteousness is about, dependent on, and solely rests on our journey into Him, into Christ. And he presents a tall, tall order. One that all of us will no doubt be living into the rest of our earthly lives. Which is why he then says again in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. In other words, I'm weak. It's humbling, often humiliating, Paul's words or any words from the Holy Bible, How did Paul feel first writing them down? Right? Paul is saying, I can lay out what what is the ideal, but I have not lived up to this ideal. If you want to know, that's me preaching pretty much every Sunday. So, here's, here's the ideal, I'm still living up to it. Paul says he's not obtained this. This desperate, Christ-exalting, Christ-pursuing, Christ-obsessing, Christ-loving life. He's not obtained this. He's not perfect. The word perfect here is often mature, and in fact, the same Greek word will perfect, or perfect, will show up in verse 15, rendered as mature. And so Paul is saying, I've, I've not arrived at this level of maturity yet. So what's the game, Paul? What's the plan? But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Seems like I've found myself in conversations with a few Christians lately who are really struggling. Struggling with doubt. Struggling with frustration. And what I try to do and what I think the church universal should do and no doubt pockets of the church likely already do, and that is just make room for it. A relationship in Christ is big enough for doubts. Christ isn't going anywhere. His existence does not depend on my faith in Him. He's going to exist no matter what. Notice Paul did not say here, but I I press on to make it my own because I have a strong enough faith. Paul knows something about Christ. He knows that Christ Jesus has made me His own. 
He has made you his own. And to quote Paul earlier in the letter, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that's a phrase I think he's about to elaborate more on in here. Paul presses on. He says, I know I don't live up to the ideal. It is a great ideal, a life sold out for Christ, obsessed with Christ, living into Christ. And though I have not obtained this, I press on anyway. It's okay that you stumble. Pick up and keep walking. It's okay that you get distracted. Confess your distractions. Repent of those. And then keep on keeping on. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it my own. There he confesses his weakness again. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind, not dismissing, not minimizing, thinking little of our offenses against God and our fellow man, but accepting forgiveness. Not just believing in grace, but actually receiving it and letting it do its part. Your sins are actually forgiven. Forgiven. Forgetting what lies behind, and then I love this, straining forward to what lies ahead. You hear the pain? You hear the room for doubt, for weaknesses, for hard seasons? Nevertheless, all that pain, frustration, and weakness is in one direction, says Paul, forward to what lies ahead. But it hurts, it's been so long, the situation has been unraveling for years, and it's time to... I press on. Again, says Paul, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Weakness looks upward. People seem wired to look inward into their weakness. It looks upward. And you strain forward and you gaze upward and you labor further into Christ. Stumbles give way to rising again and keep on walking. Distractions give way to turning our gaze back forward. Blows give way simply holding to where you've been injured and limping further into Christ if we must. But weakness looks upward. You get it? And sometimes the seasons of weakness, in fact, I should say the seasons that reveal our weakness, really get to us. Sometimes we, we seem to have seasons where maybe we're a little self-conceited thinking, I've got this, I'm better than most Christians. So the seasons that reveal our weakness and we find ourselves stumbling, I've said this a few times over the years and Dean recently told me he didn't know how he felt about it, but I say we fake it until we make it. And now I have a verse to back that up, Dean. <laughs> Paul is about to say that. Weakness imitates strength. Imitates. Now, it's really my verse of 17, but let's look in context, verses 15 through 17. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded, and if anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. 
Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brethren, join in imitating me. And mark those who so live as you have an example in us. Let's unpack this. Paul says in verse 15, basically, if you think about it, you'll receive the truth in what I've just said. Namely, here's the ideal. I know I fail the ideal. Three, even so, I press on towards living into that ideal, a life sold out to Christ, so let those of us who are mature be thus minded. He's really echoing Jesus when Jesus says, follow me in this pursuit. When you're weak, look upward, be thus minded. And when you're weak, just press on towards the goal in Christ Jesus. When you're weak, pick up yourself and keep trucking, be thus minded. And if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Joseph Benson, an early Methodist, basically states that Paul is saying this. If you, if you aren't in agreement that the best option is to pursue Christ even in weakness and to look upward from weakness, rather if you are content with living in the past and just Settling in weakness, devoid of passion and fervor to strain forward and then to head upward, God will reveal that to you. Because as I stated a bit ago, we seem to have seasons where we're a little self-conceited, right? I've arrived. And the sins I wrestle with, well, that's, that's just going to have to be a part of me. I always have to wrestle with. And those broken bridges, surely God's not calling me to reconcile those bridges. And that lack of, of fervor for His great commission, well, that's just how it is. Some are on fire for it, and others are resigned to be on the sidelines. But what if Paul's laying out of weakness looks upward is universal in scope? What if the ideal he set up in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, through 11, is an ideal that all Christians should aspire to from their weakness. To consider all things lost in comparison to Christ, to find righteousness, no, to find oneself, period, in Him. What if that pursuit is not just for a select few? And what if you or I find ourselves incorrectly, sinfully content to just sit on our laurels? Paul says... God's going to reveal that to you. Right? God's going to lay out for us, there is room for improvement here, and that improvement is not reserved for you in heaven. It's something you're capable of improving upon now by the power of my Holy Spirit. Right? And in the meantime, while we're looking upward from our weakness, we can imitate strength. Verse 16, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Because how many of us know the right thing to do, but we like deceiving ourselves and not doing it? Not so, says Paul. Hold true to what you have attained. If you learn something, abide by it. And then finally, verse 17, Brethren, join in imitating me, and mark those who so live as you have an example in us. Imitate me. Or, or mark those, or carefully observe those who live in the example that Paul and the Philippian teachers have set. In other words, fake it until you make it. Our culture seems to, to have a high value sometimes on, on novelty and being true to yourself. 
Can I just say Christ doesn't? Not when Christ has diagnosed the true self as entirely sinful and in complete opposition and hostility to Him. And I know, but that's against our values. Yeah, get over it. (laughs) Another value of the world in opposition to the way God thinks. I don't believe it. Paul has the audacity to say, weakness needs to look upward and weakness has license to imitate when it can't be strong. Imitate. Even though I was a church boy, goody two-shoes, Christian from the womb, I did not, for the life of me, have a Bible reading plan in place. There was no family uh, devotions that we did. It was just expected that the kids would, I suppose, develop it naturally by osmosis, receive a love for the Bible, a love for personal scripture reading, maybe by exhortations from the pulpit. Well, and I would come to find out early in the morning, usually very early in the morning, my dad was a mailman in Clarkston, but he still lived in Kamei, So he got up around 3.30 every morning and eventually drove to Clarkston to do the mail. But he would be up, and part of his morning routine was to have his Bible out and to have, I think it was, Reflecting God, which was the Nazarene, our daily bread, as it were. And that was his quiet time. My mom was always reading novels, everything. And I think her her Bible Bible time was before she went to sleep. She just read it in bed and... I would only have hints of that because she would make comments every now and then, well, another year done in my chronological reading Bible. And and I never did it for myself even when I could read because I had more important things to do like video games or movies to watch. I listened to a lot of music and I would think about 10% of those things were maybe redeeming or worthy of filling my mind with. My point, though, is... As for my parents, their reading was out of sight, out of mind for the most part for me as their daily time in scriptures. But there was a season. And I I shared my bedroom with my brother closest in age to me, Aaron. And there was a season when I was probably around the ages of 9 to 12. He would get out his big giant print NIV 84. He would have a devotional. I believe a devotional that just the church left out. And he was faithful most, most mornings or evenings. All I remember is that it was a time where I had to be in the bedroom, so that's why I was thinking morning and evenings. And I can't even tell you that I started reading my Bible then. But I lean towards recalling that I didn't, but I can tell you that it left an impression on me. I do distinctly remember feeling guilty and thinking, I should probably do that too. Uh, Why I never did, classic sinner I guess, but wasn't really until I was a teenager and I found a, a translation of the Bible that kept my attention because it was a bit easier to ingest that I finally started reading the Bible regularly. But that impression, that example to imitate was on my mind. And it's not that I found it within myself to just say, I should read the Bible. But I had an example before me visibly. This is what it looks like to take time out of the day to read the scriptures and to meditate on its meaning. Give you one more example. I started preaching as a junior, I believe in high school, maybe a senior. And save the select few who maybe just immediately have a miraculous and instantaneous gift. Like most people, when I started out, I was horrible. I spoke entirely too fast. Still did that when I moved here. Some of you remember that. I was all over the place in my preaching. I I didn't really have one chunk of scripture. My mentor really did have a system that works. I don't know why I didn't borrow his at the time. Like most ministers, he would take a chunk of the Bible, 
He'd go through books of the Bible while he's preaching. But in that year and a half between moving with Christy to Moscow and then being called here, I listened to one minister via podcast, in particular, whose preaching style left an impression on me. Uh, And so when I started preaching here, I tried it out. It was verse by verse. It was letting the scriptures set the stage, as it were. Whereas I usually wrote messages about a great idea I had, and I'm sure it was biblical or else I'd not be able to use scripture to make that point. But it made sense to me to know that the Bible preaches for itself. And so, for a long time, it's not that I found a great way to preach from myself. I followed an example. I imitated a strong witness. I was weak. Over the years, it's been refined, and perhaps I can say there are some elements now that might be distinctly individual and how God works through me. I don't know. But it was imitation at first. Not plagiarism. But the main outline of here is the passage, follow it verse by verse, bring out truths, find a connection. It was imitation. So if you're weak, we have scriptures that speak into that weakness. But God has placed mature believers worthy to imitate in our midst. Paul commends the Corinthians this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on your hearts to be known and read by all men. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. People can be the living Bible for us. Perhaps it should go without saying, but just in case, of course we need to use discernment, and we need to compare the examples of people that we see with Scripture and and spit out the bones and just eat the meat. But nevertheless, weakness imitates strength until it becomes strength. Does that make sense? Because what's the alternative and what's the opposite? If weakness doesn't look upward or if weakness decides not to imitate strength, Paul begins to describe what weakness gone awry looks like. Verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul can be describing pretty much anyone here. He could be describing the Judaizers uh, who a few verses back seemed like to be the, the target of his dialogue. But also, at least to the Romans and the Corinthians, Paul seems to know an enemy in self-professing Christians who see grace as a license to sin. Right? If Jesus paid it all, I'm always forgiven. Why not sin? So grace may abound. Those sorts of people. Those sorts of people, Paul says with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's like having extremely rich parents, so one would presume upon to bail you out of jail and supply all the lawyers you need so you take advantage of this. Only it's not money when it comes to Christ. It's literally torture, bloodshed, and murder of Christ. It takes advantage of His cross. If one settles into weakness, if one doesn't share the ideal of Paul about pursuing Christ with a genuine heart, 
if one doesn't press on and look upward from weakness, or if one doesn't seek to imitate strength when they can't produce strength, Paul says this about such people. He says, their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. No one, weak in faith or devoid of Christ, would ever name destruction as the end they're seeking. I mean, maybe a few jacked up in the head, thrill-seeking idiots and lunatics do, but for the most of us, for the most part, no one wakes up, ignores Christ, and say, I'm going to go destroy myself. Paul, out of the gate, he gives away the ending for such people. Their end is destruction. That's the last page. Like, if there were any curious out there, what does a life look like of not pursuing Christ? Paul says, last page, the conclusion is destruction. That's the ending. I gave it away. Sorry. How do you know this, Paul? Because Adam and Eve tried it. What was the end? Destruction. Because by and large, the world tried it in the time of Noah. What was the end? Quite literally, destruction. Their God is the belly. This is not just a simple condemnation of gluttony, period. It's a metaphor of all those who would live by passions. As Paul would say in Ephesians 2.3, he says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of body and mind. And so just how some 21st century Westerners literally have the power to pretty much to desire anything, and then buy it in seconds with a tool from their hand called a smartphone. So Paul says, those who live into their weakness instead living from their weakness are those who have posited God as their belly or their passions. I like this. I want to do this. I don't care what anyone says. If it really doesn't hurt anyone, I will have it. I'm in charge. No, you just think you're in charge. Paul says essentially what Christ said, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. If you only do what you want to do and you live into weakness, who is really running your life? I am. Yeah, but the road you're following wasn't laid down by you. It's a road laid down by Satan himself, and simply because you voluntarily take your car and drive down that road does not mean you're in charge. It means you're stupid. But unwilling to admit weakness, unwilling to let go of self-conceited control, because it's not real control, it's really just slavery to sin, Paul then accurately diagnoses the pride in such persons, and they say they glory in their shame. I know I'm out of the will of Christ, but hey, I, I enjoy it, I'm happy, I got it made, I don't have anyone telling me what to do. And we already said they do have someone telling them what to do. He's been a deceiver and a manipulator from the beginning. So he's not going to let in to them that he's their ruler right now. Reminds me of the end of Romans 1 where Paul lists out what he calls here people whose God is their belly. And then he says, though they know God's decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them but approve those who practice them. They glory in their shame. I mean, I know we see this 
vividly when people decorate their cities in rainbow banners and we know they're not celebrating the promise made to Noah. When people boast about how many beers they can put away, that's glorying in their shame. When people take pride on how long they can conceal their addiction to pornography, that's glorying in their shame. When people are so proud about how they told their friend, their parent, their son, or their daughter, off, boy, I won that argument. Good for you. You're glorying in your shame. When the self-righteous person whips out the Word of God and cites all the verses to smite their opponent into shame and guilt, even then, that's glorying in your shame. We don't call people to feel guilty and depressed and worthless. Quite the opposite. Paul is urging those weak in faith to know their value, bought by the blood of Christ. And don't go awry in weakness. Rather, look upward from weakness and imitate strength from weakness because you're worth more than a belly-worshipping, glorying in shame with minds set on earthly things. Because all of this pressing on, all of this straining Forward, All of this imitating those who are strong will also have an end, and it's a better end than destruction. But our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power which enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brethren, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand Firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is where weakness finds salvation. This is why Paul encourages his readers to look upwards because that's where our commonwealth is. Upward. Our home is in heaven. Paul encourages his readers to imitate strength because our Savior is strength. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will change our lowly bodies, our weak bodies, to be like His, perfect, without weakness, without frailty, without hindrances. He will do that because He has the power to do that. He can subject all things to Himself. So it's a win-win. As Paul set the ideal to be one of continued, persistent focus, reliance upon, dependence upon, obsession in, love, clinging to Christ, He is also the salvation for our weakness, for the times we cannot, like Paul, live up to that ideal. Consequently, He, Christ, is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Christ expects? He supplies. So, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, says Paul. If you're weak, if you come to Christ and and you're frustrated, you're struggling with doubt there and you're frustrated with this here and you can't keep a lid on this sin and you can't stop with those doubts and you just... Weakness looks upward, says Paul. Even so, despite all these things, just press on, just strain forward, just keep looking upward. Weakness imitates strength. Fake it until you make it if you have to. Imitate godliness when you don't feel like being godly. See where others have been successful before you and from your weakness imitate that. 
Because weakness gone awry has a bad ending that's already been written. It's destruction. Nothing good comes from living into weakness as opposed from looking upward and imitating from weakness. Because ultimately, weakness will find its salvation in Christ who will ultimately, in His end, transform our weak bodies to be like His glorious body. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, I guess everybody with jobs has those days and weeks and seasons of hardness, of don't know what to do here. This seems out of my, out of my league, out of my pay grade. And for me, it was frustrating until I just admit, like Paul, I'm weak. I don't know what to write, but then you fill me with your spirit and you say, that's where Paul was at. Father, many of us just maybe we need to admit we're weak. There are some things that are happening that we wish we had a handle on, but we don't. So, Father, help us in those moments. Sure, of course, always, most importantly, confess our weakness, confess our sins. Father, forgive us. I'm weak here. And then, of course, now to also look upward, to keep pressing on forward. But I fell down. Pick yourself up and keep going. But I stumbled. Keep walking. But I'm injured. Hold that injury and keep walking. Keep straining forward. And help us to imitate strength when we can't be strong. Help us to look to those godly examples. And and even if we say, well, I don't feel genuine doing it this way. Well, fake it until you make it. Because help us to not to want to reflect our true self, but to reflect who you are, because that's what you made us for. And lastly, Father, we thank you that we can expect transformation of our lowly bodies to be like yours. Thank you that our commonwealth is not here. This isn't our final home. There's a much better home prepared for us. And thank you that it's with you and in your presence. So, Father, help us. Help us in the coming week to be an example of weakness looking upward to others. And help us to be more like Jesus. Give us those moments, those conversations. And help us to find the strength like both Mary and Susan were mentioning in our prayer time earlier. To be your voice to other people. To see where they're at with you. Because, Father, we know that, as Paul pointed out to us, their end is destruction if they haven't accepted you. Father, that should arrest our hearts. And so help us to respond accordingly and obediently to do what we can to rectify that insofar as we're able. Help us to be your hands, feet, and voice. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you're always loving, you're always forgiving, and thank you that you don't leave us where we're at. That you didn't call us to salvation and then say you have arrived and left us with all the sins that still seem to ensnare us, but you're always calling us to greater. You can expect it because you can supply the power through the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you and we ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.